Today we continue a series of discussions about the basics of Marxism, a method for understanding and changing the world used by many of the great revolutionaries and thinkers and organizers of modern history. Mainstream politicians talk about small government or big government, but never tell the truth about who the government serves. We'll discuss Marxism's theory of the state and how the state that rules over the United States serves to entrench the wealth and power of the already elite. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Well, we've covered a lot of territory in the last several weeks. We've talked about the Marxist view of social classes, the distinct and unique Marxist view of social classes. That was last week. We've talked about different economic, social, and political categories of Marxism. And this time we're going to focus on the state. In my introduction, I talked about big government, small government, but government is one part of the discussion when we talk about the state. But as others have pointed out, the politicians or the current government, whatever the form of government is, comes and goes. But there is a permanent apparatus called the state, and it consists of a bureaucratic side. It consists of a repressive side. Lenin, in his important work, State and Revolution, which he, well, he started to write right prior to the Russian Revolution in December 1916 and then January 1917, and then his writings were interrupted by the revolution against the then existing state, and he came back to it and finished it in 1918. He makes the argument that the essence of the state are what he calls the armed bodies of men, meaning the police, the military, and then the courts and the prisons, systems of repression that allow a minority class, a minority part of society to retain its privileges and its power. We'll talk about Lenin's view of the state. Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto written in 1848, again, on the eve of revolution then, 
prior to the 1917 revolution, there was a European-wide revolution in 1848, 1849. They wrote, quote, the bourgeoisie has at last since the establishment of modern industry and of the world market conquered for itself in the modern representative state exclusive political sway. The executive of the modern state is but a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. So that's Marx and Engels writing in 1848. We have many other writings on the state. Obviously, it's a focus for political scientists, political economists, Marxists and non-Marxists alike. Ernest Mandel, the European Marxist, wrote a short pamphlet called The Marxist Theory of the State that was published in 1969. I'm looking at the introduction to that pamphlet, and it starts with this. Every branch of knowledge has a central concept that expresses the fundamental feature or function of the sector of reality it investigates and deals with. The pivotal category of political science is the state. So let's start there, Professor Wolf, and then I want to come back to Marx and to Lenin and some of the debates and controversies over the state. But of course, because we're living in 2021 and not 1917 and not 1848, the language of those earlier texts was complicated for today's reader. Let's just get started. Okay, before we do, let me add to the list of important documents and writings one more. Karl Marx's close colleague and co-author, Frederick Engels, wrote a very famous pamphlet that contains also really key ideas briefly expressed in a pamphlet. It's called The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. And you will see not only how Engels and Marx linked these three together, and they are very closely linked, but you'll see there some of the key ideas about how to think about the state that were then developed and extended by those who came later, like Lenin and many others. Okay, let's begin. The state is an institution developed in and by human beings to manage their collective affairs. In other words, the minute you have a community, whether it be a small collection of families or tribes or clans or villages or towns or countries, it really doesn't matter. When you have significant numbers of different people trying to live and work together, they have almost always discovered they need some sort of coordination. For example, some of their problems are collective. If you're assaulted by a disease, the way COVID-19 confronted literally this planet with the dangers it represented, you need a collective response. You need to gather the resources you have, coordinate the efforts of different members of your community to defeat this threat to your collective well-being. Likewise, let me take a very simple example. If the vehicles you use to move around are automobiles and they work on a system of roads that crisscross each other, 
then you have to organize the intersections. Otherwise, the different cars coming at the intersection from different directors will smash into each other. So we have an entity. Let's call it the government or the part of the government that is in charge of traffic so that it will put up signs and traffic lights and arrange for a curriculum to explain to children in school what a red light means, what a green light means, what the purpose of it all is. In other words, a state is a kind of representative of the community to take care of the community's activities that shouldn't be the responsibility of this or that individual. It's kind of everybody's responsibility. So you set up an institution that coordinates and manages all of this. That's the idea of the state. It, it represents the community in some sense. The problem, and this is where Marx becomes really creative in his thinking and Engels articulates it, the problem becomes if the community stops being an equal democratic collective, each family roughly having the same amount of influence on what is done, and whether that be the work or the leisure or the recreation or what have you, if you don't have that anymore, if the society itself breaks up into, and here comes Marx, opposing classes where one group of people works for another, well, then you're going to have fundamentally different interests. So let's jump right into the present. In the present world, a world that we call capitalist, there is a minority of the community that are employers. That is their job to manage the production of the goods and services no community can live without. Certainly none of today's can. We need to have our clothing provided and our food provided and so forth, more or less, almost all of it, through the production in enterprises in firms, in corporations, whatever we call them. And inside those firms, a small minority of the people occupy the position of employer. The vast majority of people occupy the position of employee. The employers tell the majority, the employees, what to do, how to do it, where to do it, and when the production is done, when the goods and services have been produced by the employees who are the vast majority involved, the product becomes immediately and exclusively the property of that minority, the employer. The employees, at the end of each day, go home. They go home wearing the clothing they came with, all that they have produced, all that they've poured their brains and muscles into is instantly and automatically the property of that minority. Now let's take it the next logical step. The less the minority, the employers, have to give back to the workers, the employees, in wages, the more of the output they get to keep for themselves. 
In other words, and here's the punchline, the interests of the minority are not identical with the interests of the majority. To say it in the simplest English I know, the minority is always afraid that this arrangement will not be acceptable to the majority. And since the majority is exactly that, the majority, and since the employers are in fact a small minority, their position at the top of society, because the employers are the richest people, the ones who gather the fruit of labor into their own hands, they are afraid. So they turn to the state, this minority of employers, and they demand from the state something that would not be necessary if you didn't have a system like capitalism with a minority that runs the show and a majority that does most of the work. And so what these employers do, and that's what Lenin meant, was they move to take the state, to make the state function in a way that reproduces, protects their particular minority position. And there's no nice way to say this other than they want the state to dominate the mass of the people. In other words, to protect the minority from the majority saying, hey, we're the majority, we have the majority of the votes, we have the majority of the people. If there's voting, if there's anything remotely like democracy, we're going to run this system differently. We're not going to allow a small minority to take the wealth and to make the state become an oppressor of us rather than be the representative of what we all together need and want. The history of the capitalist system, and by the way, this is not different from the history of the feudal system before it or the slave system before that, is to use the state to reproduce a fundamentally unequal class structure. And that's why you get phrases like, from the Marxian perspective, the state is the executive committee of the ruling class, or phrases like that, which summarize what I've just tried to explain, summarize what happens when the state, which began as a collectively acceptable, desirable, coordinating entity and becomes something quite different, which is a dominating agency, a force to dominate one part of the population, the majority, on behalf of and for the interests of a very small minority. One way to summarize it in terms of the United States right now as we speak, we are a country here in the United States that incarcerates much more of its people than any other country on the face of the earth as a percentage of our population. And if you look at the people in prison, they are 99.9% working class people. The number of employers can be... Uh, counted on the fingers of very few people's hands. They find ways not to end up in our jails, not to end up at the wrong end of the criminal prosecution process, 
And that's not an accident. That's a symptom and a reflection of what I've just tried to summarize as what happened to the state in slavery, feudalism, and capitalism when it added this domination function to its original objectives. Richard, the way this topic is discussed in schools, the way it's discussed in the media, the way it's discussed by government officials, always emphasizes the form of government. In the case of the United States, for instance, the U.S. says, as Joe Biden just proclaimed when he was at the G7, his first overseas trip, where he was trying to weld together a new united front against China, presumably because they were fighting a noble cause against, quote, forced labor. I thought it was ironic because all of the G7 nations were the colonizers of the world who grew wealthy, not because they practiced democracy in India or China or Ghana or Nigeria or Cuba or Puerto Rico or the Philippines or you know 90% of the globe, but because they, in fact, forced labor. They stole the labor of the people. There was no democratic choice there. Anyway, one of the ironies, but the language is about the form of government. We are a democracy, or in the case of the G7, the wealthiest democracies. And then at the same time, you sort of think back, well, what made the United States a democracy? Well, presumably it's that people got to vote every two or four years, depending on whether it was a national election or a local election. Yes, George Washington won unanimously back in the first election. And yes, it took until 1828 before white men who did not own property also had the right to vote. And it took till 1920 for women to have the right to vote. A big part of the U.S. working class were enslaved people and thus property and didn't have any right to vote. But the form of government, because there were elections, it was always called a democracy. But then what you're talking about is underneath the form of government, there is the actual state. And I want to read to you a little bit, just a paragraph. It's from Lenin's speech to Sverdlov University in 1919. He is then the head of state in what was the Russian Socialist Federation at that time later to become the USSR. He urges all of the students to read the book that you started your comments on. He said, read the origin of the family, private property, and the state. He tells the students why they should. But then he does a brief summary, and and it goes pretty much along the lines of what you were just talking about. But I want to read it and then ask a follow-up question. Here's Lenin. But there was a time when there was no state, when general ties, the community itself, discipline, and the ordering of work were maintained by force of custom and tradition, by the authority or the respect enjoyed by the elders of the clan, or by women, who in those times not only frequently enjoyed a status equal to that of men, but not infrequently enjoyed an even higher status. And when there was no special category of persons who were specialists in ruling, history shows that the state as a special apparatus for coercing people arose wherever and whenever there appeared a division of society into classes. That is, a division into groups of people, some of which were permanently in a position to appropriate the labor of others, where some people exploited 
others. Okay, that's Lenin speaking in 1919 at Sverdlov University. And if one were to think about it and not focus on the form of government, whether there's elections or not, but think about the reality as you outlined it, if we go back through all of the different class societies, which had many different forms of government, some were by elections, some were by military dictatorships, some were fascist, some were more democratic, whatever. If you had a society like the society of antiquity of Rome or Greece, where there were elections and citizens participated, they were also premised on the fact that the labor, the working class, those who did the labor in those societies were not exclusively, but mainly slaves. And so there would be no way that this democratic form of government could actually retain slavery without coercion. I mean, it's sort of obvious. Like, why would someone remain a slave except for the fact that they might be killed or badly hurt if they tried to escape slavery? I mean, it speaks to the distinction that we need to make, and Marxism does make, between the form of government and the essence of a state or a state apparatus. You know, I think most people kind of understand that. If you look at the last few years, all kinds of people on the political left, but also on the political right, trying to understand the difference between the surface rituals and performances of government and some more underlying reality that is hidden, if you like. So you have these comments of there's a quote-unquote deep state. Trump's talked about it. Left-wing critics have always talked about it. They're trying to get at what you're saying. They're trying to get at, look at the state less in terms of its own self-image as something representative, as something organic, as something that represents everybody, and get to another perspective, a deeper understanding Yeah, that maybe the state on the surface represents everybody, but if it does so, it's representing them in a very particular way, and there we get to the class differences. It's representing the existing class structure. If I could be, for a moment, slightly critical of Lenin, it's not that he's wrong, it's that When he says there were times when there was no state because communities were governed by custom, by tradition, by general understanding, he's right, and yet people didn't understand it all in the same way. In other words, there were differences among people, not class differences in the sense that some of them worked for others, not that. Lenin was clear about what that did. But there are other kinds of differences, differences of opinion, differences of attitude, differences of where exactly you function in a community. Are you rural? Are you urban? Are you educated more, less, this way, that way? And there has to be in every community some way of adjudicating, of kind of working out these differences so that a general decision can be made. And those who prevail in that decision, whose way of interpreting things governs, have to be gentle and allow for those who lost that struggle, whose point of view was not persuasive, to bring it up again, maybe in six months or maybe in a year. In other words, there are ways in which a community needs a specialized apparatus 
to accommodate the differences that always exist among people. For that matter, even within the family or even within one of us, we have different feelings, moods, desires, objectives at different moments in our lives. So I would argue we've always had something like that. But when you bring class difference, when people stop having an equal democratic relationship to this crucial activity, production, the one that most adults spend most of their lives doing, producing goods and services in the enterprise, in the home, in the neighborhood. That's what we mostly do. If that isn't done in an equalized way, in a democratic way, one person, one vote, with all that that means, if you allow people to have very disparate interests, very disparate amounts of wealth, different amounts of political power, well, then you're going to have the state be pressed by those people who dominate to be the agency of their domination, to serve them, as you said at the outset of this program. And I think the United States government is a fantastic illustration. And the last few weeks have been an even better illustration as the ProPublica website released the information that the 25 richest billionaires in the United States have been able to so shape the government of the United States that they pay less in taxes as a percentage of their income and wealth than the average working class person. Well, there you have it. The richest people who are most able to pay end up using the government to shift the burden of taxation off of themselves and on to the average people, which is not what the average people want. That's not the government serving democratically what the majority wants. It's the exact opposite. It's the government dominating, forcing the mass of people to pay a disproportionate share, arresting and imprisoning those who do not pay their taxes, while permitting the employer class to use the very wealth created by the majority, the employees, to hire the lawyers to bribe or donate to, if you want to be polite, the politicians to get the law written so that they can dominate the majority, pay no taxes or next to nothing, while the average person worries that the taxes they're paying will impact their ability to send their kid to school or to put enough food on the table or to hold on to their apartment or their home. I mean, you could not ask for a better set of illustrations of what Marxists have meant by the state serving a particular class than the United States right now. The ProPublica documents, somebody leaked IRS documents. They show that these billionaires, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Michael Bloomberg, George Soros, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Mark Zuckerberg, at different times paid literally no taxes. And Jeff Bezos, by the way, in 2007, he did not pay a penny in federal income taxes. He did it again in 2011, according to these documents. He even took the $4,000 child tax credit, if you can imagine that. <laughs> right. In 2018, Elon Musk, Tesla founder, also the son of a man who owned an emerald mine in Zambia, 
part of his ascendancy to the, being the second richest person in the world today after Jeff Bezos. He didn't pay any taxes. Mike Bloomberg managed to do the same. Carl Icahn. One of the things that's really interesting. Oh, by the way, Warren Buffett, who has been, you know, for the last few years saying billionaires should be taxed more. His true tax rate, his true tax rate on these years, 2014 to 2018, where his wealth grew by $24.3 billion, the total taxes he paid was 23.7. And even though his wealth grew by $24.38 billion, his total income reported was only $125 million, not the $24.38 billion. So his true tax rate is 0.1%, one-tenth of 1%. Now, you know, I just did my taxes, 15%, 18%, but 0.1%. Jeff Bezos had a 0.9%. He didn't make it to a 1% true tax rate on a $99 billion increase in his wealth. Anyway, what's interesting, Professor Wolf, and we'll end on this with this point, and you can get the final word. The government is cracking down now by what? By going after seeking the whistleblower, the leaker of these IRS tax forms to put that person on trial and to send that person to jail. That's the state, the capitalist state in operation. Absolutely. It's like uh, the uh, sheriff in a cowboy movie that I grew up with. After the sheriff has failed to protect the town from the marauding bandits that came through and killed people and robbed the bank and all the rest, there you see the camera zooming in on the sheriff, and he says with great authority to his deputies, go and round up the usual suspects. In other words, he wants to preen in front of the camera that he's going after the people who did this in the hope that it will distract attention from the total failure to have foreseen, to have taken the necessary steps, to have been protective of the community. He's failed as sheriff doing 90% of what he's there to do. So he's got to focus you on the remaining 10%, the too little and the too late. And that's what you're seeing now. That's right. You're going to go after the whistleblower. You're going to talk lots of nonsense about privacy as if this society, which monitors our email and our telephone and, you know, literally everything we're doing is caring about privacy. I mean, you really have to be lost in the fog of ideology to take seriously what is going on here. And the Marxian theory of the state is a wonderfully insightful corrective to all of that. Indeed. So we have from Western movies to the making of Casablanca, uh, the police, the representatives of the state, tongue in cheek, preening, saying round up the usual suspects. When in fact, the system is, while it says it's a system of justice, it's premised on a system of injustice. And so the state is there to enforce this injustice that's perpetrated daily against the majority of the population. We were joined by Professor Richard Wolf. He is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, the author of many books, the latest being 
The sickness is the system when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf.com, and that's rdwolff.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We will be back tomorrow. Our special guest tomorrow will be Daniel Ellsberg on this, the 50th anniversary of the release of the Pentagon Papers. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.